one more time. Let it when we were young, screaming at the top of both our lungs on the day we fell in love. Yeah, this is, uh, if anybody ever wonders why I sometimes lie in bed awake, what's going through my head? It's that song sang by Rob Stinson. What's up, beautiful people? This is Gary Horde, and this is, this is Pro Wrestling, the uh, podcast that celebrates the history, legacy, and tradition of the greatest sport of all time. I left it at that. I don't know. I don't I have like a different, I feel like I should have a different entrance for all of these different shows but whatever i am joined as always by my life partner will martin hey will hey and also you're, you're just sorry you're, you're you're just lacking the luster that you normally have when we kick these and uh, is it because rob was serenading you or and you said you just had one life partner like what the heck was that i just about? said he <laughs> is my life partner i didn't say i was done announcing life partners yeah Bro, we just booked an Airbnb together here today as we record this. So clearly, I'm gonna I'm gonna bang somebody. <laughs> anyway, uh, no, I'm sorry. I was, other, you know, you know what's day. happening? Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on Gary. <laughs> just a little product, the little production note for the for the, uh, the for the special features on our our DVD version of this. Gary texts me the other day and is like, "Hey, Rob." About this last episode, you want me to include that stuff about the strip club? <laughs> I was like, "Bro, go ahead, man. Ain't nobody gonna listen to this." Uh, I was. So <laughs> if any of you guys are hiring, uh, Rob and Gary are, are looking for new jobs. <laughs> I was. I was thinking about you, Rob. I was thinking about your. Uh, you know, we we won't talk about it forever on here. Although you do bring it up, you know, maybe that's not the best stories to tell. I don't know. I don't. I don't know. Either way, I also feel like our listeners get to know us a little bit better. So that's that's part of it, too. Anyway, and and Piper and Petra, if you're listening to this later in life and you want to learn more about the history of pro wrestling, yes, your father and I are sleeping together. Which Petra and Piper <laughs> are you talking about? <laughs> you're not talking about mine. You're obviously talking I'm about, talking the, about the strippers from the pink pony. <laughs> yeah, that Petra and Piper. I don't even remember if we told that story, but yeah, that was that was the best moment of my life when Rob was no. That was a terrible moment. That was a terrible moment. In fact, <laughs> well, did we tell you this? You no, know what I'm talking about? Oh, we, were no at, we were at that strip club. Rob's just on, like, yo, dog, you just got to get into the strip club. I mean, everybody's here willingly. Everybody's like doing their thing. You know, everybody's like open. It's This is the way society's supposed to work. And then we hear like, and now on the main stage, Piper. Oh, no. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> I was like, Rob, did you hear that? Oh, and, he's like, and I was like, Rob, how tight would it be if you hear like next, like, and over on the East now, stage, here comes Petra, everybody. <laughs> oh, <laughs> the whole God. conversation took a different turn. At, at that point, I was like, we gotta this go. is terrible. <laughs> We shouldn't be. We, sh- we shouldn't be here. This is the degeneration of America. This is degeneration X. We're we oh, living through it right he now. Me, he called me on the phone one day, and he was just like, "Oh man, I keep thinking about when you was like making that joke in the strip club and blah blah blah." And I was like, "Oh, you mean the one about like now up on the stage left? It's Petra. She's my 
cherry pie. <laughs> and then over, and, and that's on your stage, life. right? That's your life, Rob. Like twenty years from now, that's you, dog. <laughs> on, on stage, right? Coming out to oh, y'all crazy man. <laughs> like, nah, man. I hope they don't listen to this episode now. So I just anyway, love, I love the idea. Like you know. For those of you that don't know, we we record this show right after we do our our NWA Power Post show over on the NWA channel, and it's like as soon as we hit record on this show, it's like ah, we just like anything goes. You can say whatever you want, and these two guys just go buck wild with it. Like you guys had like you guys had to suppress yourself when we were on on you know the big channel yeah, earlier on the corporate channel. All that, and pin, you guys all that pin up anxiety, man. That I up. know, man. Well, for those of you who are just joining us right now, what we're here for is to remove the gatekeepers and tell you to the best of our ability, whether a new fan or old, all of the stories, all of the dirt with no sheets about this legendary industry that we all love professional wrestling. Uh, if you're just joining us, like I said, I mean, we've been blazing a trail, carving a path, if you will, through the timeline of wrestling. This series is but a highlight of then till now. A straight line from wrestlers like Odo the Caveman with the club off the top rock to Orange Cassidy. Why does he keep his hands in his pockets? We're going to find out. Probably. Or maybe not. But anyway, we have a little ways to go before we get there, gentlemen. Where we're at now... When we last saw pro wrestling, it was in a bit of a transitional period almost. In the wake of Frank Gotch and George Hackenschmidt, it was attempting to once again capture the masses like it had been. Uh, there were sparks in there, some fantastic talent, Farmer Bird's influence still being felt this many episodes in. You saw guys like Joe Stecker, Earl Caddick, the very cool Opera Cup tournament that led to a more story-based approach, and then the infamous masked marvel appeared that captured the public interest a bit as they attempted to determine his identity but this also raised many more questions too then world war one happened and well damn it everything is changing for the entire world at this point i mean much less our favorite sport right rob not only is everything changing the world's heavyweight champion the lineal champion takes the belt with them to Europe to fight in the American Expeditionary Force in World War One goes out there for an extended period of time. I mean, that's never happened before, right? Or since, and and comes back still as world champion. But the whole world was thrown up in the people. It's a good thing we won. Gosh, what if who we knows? Won, man, Rob would be over there. Who wearing would be champ like now? Rob would have like hammer and sickle tattoo or something. <laughs> I'd be over here like ich komme aus den Vereinigten Staaten. Wurde come and see. Nick. <laughs> real real talk real talk up to this point that now, now we started this at the dawn of history since the we started this at the foundations of the world and look at all the different distinctive styles of martial arts that we've encountered we're talking about ancient wrestling that you saw at the first olympiad we're talking about pancration later on catch as catch can wrestling greco-roman wrestling all these different styles but in the 1920s the evolution of the sport that we recognize as professional wrestling reached its final form. And by final form, I mean the form that we see and would recognize today in a style that would be called the slam bang Western style. A style that became necessary for the sport's survival following the great boom of the Gotch 
Hackenschmidt era and then the devastating bust in the country that followed the loss of faith in the legitimacy of the sport as a result of the Opera Cup, the retirement of Frank Gotch, and perhaps uh, most significantly, the global crisis fatigue of World War I that Gary was talking about. The sport was transitioning into a different form and as a result was experiencing a transition of fan base from an older audience interested in the sport of wrestling to a newer audience more interested in entertainment rather than sport. And so it's going to take some time for the fan bases to transition, for the, the support level to catch back up. So there was a bit of a lull. But the high priests that oversaw this transition were a troop of three men who would... In the late 1930s, well after their decline now, well after they had come and gone, would be uh, described as the Gold Dust Trio. This term, by the way, does not originate while these three men were active. It's coined in a book that circulated in about the, uh, the mid to late 1930s, 1937 or so, called Fall Guys, The Barnums of Bounce, by a gentleman named Marcus Griffin. And, uh, and he, he describes the influence of the Gold Dust Trio, Gary. Now, this is... Not the 1990s Dustin Rhodes character that developed a stutter when he was electrocuted on live TV. We're not at that point in storytelling, right? I don't even know what that is. That, that, that's, a, <laughs> that's, that's a thing and that it, happened. <laughs> when Gold Dust and Booker T were a tag team, I think it was like the New Age Outlaws. They had they like shoved Gold Dust into like a freaking power box or something. And he got electrocuted that he would stutter all the time. And then it was just a clever way during that era to like almost get him to curse, but not quite curse. So he, you know, and Vince was like barking orders. He's like, you're such a dick, 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 dictator. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that was the joke every week. Old Raw. Uh, classic. Another point of clarity, the slam bang Western. Now that is not a dish at Denny's, right? We're talking about wrestling. I mean, if we open a wrestling themed restaurant, which I feel like we will one day, that should we're, headed, definitely that, we're be. headed that way. <laughs> it feels like it should be uh, something we, we get ourselves into for sure. Like the turnbuckle burger and the, uh, the Hogan ham sandwich. Greco ramen noodles. <laughs> are these things that are at the turnbuckle bar <laughs> yeah. and grill, right? Hold up. No, no. no <laughs> it no. was pretty good. The, actually, I didn't even, the I didn't even ramen catch it noodles? Right now. See, you Greco guys keep on my jokes, noodles. man. You guys wonder. You guys wonder why I just sit back and listen because when I when I make jokes, quality jokes like that, you guys just you keep on talking with educational talk. I think for comic relief, you gotta let me in. That's some dog uh, SEO junk you pull right there on them Greco ramen noodles, man. <laughs> Greco ramen. <laughs> you ran a you ran a search on that on Pinterest or something. <laughs> that was good, man. That's clever. I'm here on that. I like that. No, nah, man. I don't think that that has anything to do with. Uh, uh, Goldberg and Booker T and the new wave <laughs> outlaws or nothing. I don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't But what it does have to do with Gary is three men. First of all, first man we want to talk about is Ed the Strangler Lewis. Born as Robert Friedrich and a student of Farmer Burns. Now you're going to like this, Will. He was a student of the great Farmer Burns, but not in your traditional sense. He actually, <laughs> no, I'm not, I'm not kidding here, man. He took the Burns correspondence or distance learning or virtual course. <laughs> so he, <laughs> he, he studied Farmer Burns through correspondence, man. It was this like distance this learning as a wrestler well before the pandemic. He was in the wrong 20s. COVID-1 was coming out. COVID-2 was coming out or whatever. <laughs> well, you know, to say that, but like I've seen like Lance Storm right now 
during this time. Like he he's doing that for money. You know, you pay him a certain amount, you send him some tapes. He'll write down like notes and stuff. I've been listening to the Observer, like uh, Brian Alvarez, Vinny V, whoever his buddy is. I think that's who it is. They like have a match, and like they said, they got like forty five pages back from Lance of like notes. This is what you did wrong here. This is what you should have changed here. And like this is why you do well, this. And I, I, that's probably. Probably doable today, but I don't know what kind of video footage they were dealing with back in in you know the 1920s. But I know this. I mean, when I, th- I, I think video footage was just starting back in the 1920s. Right, right, whatever. I, I've seen illustrations and written descriptions, and I still don't know what the heck a stranglehold is. Like I still don't know. I want to know what the Ed the Strangler Lewis stranglehold is compared to the Evan Strangler Lewis stranglehold. It's Ted Nugent. Who came out to stranglehold, Rob? <laughs> Look, man. No, focus. I'm asking. Somebody, a wrestler came out to stranglehold. Did the song uh, stranglehold? It was uh, gone. Von Erichs. The Von Erichs came out to stranglehold. Uh, it says here. Carrie Von Erichs' entrance was stranglehold by Ted Nugent. In WWF? Yeah. No, not in WWF. In real Carrie Von Erichs. World class. Yeah. World class. Because yeah, I don't think w- he, w- he didn't w- go to Carrie Von Erichs in WWF, did he? He was a Texas Tornado. Yeah, he was like, he did not, he specifically did not want to be called Kerry Von Erich because he felt like, given his medical condition and whatnot, that he did not live up to the Von Erich name anymore and he didn't want to embarrass anybody. That's what I'm told I, just from like Dark Side of the Ring and all that, but, but he just went by the Texas Tornado. What song did he well, come out? It was out also to like then? the modern day warrior, and they yeah. wouldn't use that no. because of the ultimate warrior and all that stuff. That's we're not even there yet. We're not mm, even there yet. Gosh. We're talking about you distance learning with Farmer Birds. You said something <laughs> about you said something about Bill Goldberg and the New Wave Warriors had <laughs> taken correspondence <laughs> courses in a video with with Lance Young, with oh, Lance Russell. <laughs> the New Wave Warriors. <laughs> they come out in quicksilver shirts and like uh, the dynamic. To, to, to go back, I mean, before we lose everybody, uh, Ed the Stegret Lewis has got to be like one of the all-time most famous pro wrestling names, I would think. Uh, he started when he's 14 years old and he used, you know, that choke you were talking about. So I did look into this and Evan's choke, from my understanding, this is Evan the Strangler Lewis. His was more of a rear naked choke is what you would call it in like modern day MMA terms. Ed's, according to the comic book story of professional wrestling, his was more of a side headlock almost. Although you can find video Right now on YouTube and pictures, you can find Ed Strangler Lewis putting this on people. And it looks like to me, in the ones that I can find footage of, more of a guillotine. He's trapping them, you know, like if they were lunging at him and he's got them hooked from the front and kind of leaning back on it. Either way, they're going to get that neck. Yeah, that, that that's the crux of it. They're going for the neck. He obviously adopted this name from as an homage to the great Evan the Strangler Lewis. And we remember when we were talking about the Opera Cup, you know, there, there's a debate on when Evan the Strangler Lewis passed away. Some people think that he was around even during that time. That's neither here nor there. What is here or there is that Evan or that Ed the Strangler Lewis became one of the biggest names in the business. And in 1920, he reached the mountaintop. He won the lineal world's heavyweight championship from Joe Stecker. Now, when I say lineal, World's Heavyweight Championship, I mean that same title 
that Nick Holtis currently holds today. You want my proof? It's in the pudding. <laughs> uh, side according note, to- side note, I just will throw this in there, Rob, before you get there. Sorry. Uh, according to some stories I saw, it, it just because I was interested in this, the reason he chose that name also was because he didn't want his because he started at 14. He didn't want his parents to know he was wrestling. So he chose Ed the Strangler Lewis. And, you know, his his name is actually Robert Friedrich. And so that was his way to hide it from his parents. Now, there was a documentary on A&E that even tells the story. And it's called, like, The Unreal Story of Professional Wrestling or something like that. It tells a story that he used his finisher in France and they thought he was strangling people, so they started calling him the strangler, and then he just evolved it from there. But I, I feel like that was more like possibly Evan, if anything. Evan the Strangler Lewis, that story fits more with to me. But anyway, that was another thing on a and I, I just think it's remarkable that that the 14-year-old mind, I'm a parent, you know, I've got I've got kids as old as 21 as of, on April the 10th, and then kids as young as, as two and a half. When I was 14, here's what I would have thought. Here's a great idea. I want to hide this from my parents. So let me assume the identity of the greatest wrestler of all time. If I want to be a rock star, but don't want my parents to know, hey, I'm going to tell them I'm Devin Lee Roth. I'm, I'm, I'm Devin Lee Roth. No one will. They'll never catch on. No one's well, going to come to my house. I feel me like down. I would have come pretty close. I would have just fucked it up. Like I'd have been like, no, mom, that's not me. That's Hulk Horde. <laughs> 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 anyway, uh, he wins the lineal championship from Joe Stecker in 1920. Let me just establish the millennial ship real quick. Okay. Just take a second. Uh, and I draw this from the wrestling yearbook, 1973. This is the same publication that eventually would be assumed under Pro Wrestling Illustrated, Victor Sports Wrestling, Insider Wrestling, that whatnot. They trace the NWA Championship all the way from Frank Gotch in 1905 to Dory Funk Jr. Okay, At, that is the Lineal Championship. And in, in 1905, here's what they say. Now I'm not going to get into disputing this. Now I've got like match records, and some of these don't completely match up. So I'm not asserting the accuracy of this but i just want to say that in 1973 people looked at ed the strangler lewis as the lineal champion holding the belt that eventually dory funk jr would hold okay in 1905 frank gotch beats hackenschmidt right in 1906 fred bill beats gotch in 1906 gotch defeats fred bill and he retires in 1913 well the following year 1914 Charlie Cutler wins a series of matches over Henry Oderman and Jesse Westgard, a match that was suggested by uh, none other than Frank Gotch to win the championship. Uh, in 1915, Stecker beats Cutler. In 1917, Caddick beats Stecker. In 1920, Stecker beats Caddick. In 1921, Ed the Strangler Lewis beats Stecker. So this belt that... Lewis holds is the same championship that dates back to 1905 and Frank Gotch, uh, the title that he won from George Hackenschmidt or, or the title that was established in his match and his, his legendary match against Hackenschmidt to declare a world champion. What do you think about them apples? Love them. By this point, if our listeners are not bought in on the idea that Nick Aldis holds the lineal championship all the way back to like 1908, you're listening to the wrong podcast. I'm sorry. Doc Sensen's going to argue that every single time. But, I mean, I may sound dismissive about it, but I think you've got a legitimately great argument for it. 
it's like you always have to assume some things or embellish some ideas or whatever every so often, but that's pro wrestling. So if you want to play that game, the person who's got as much right as or more right than anybody would be that NWA World's Heavyweight Championship. There right, it and is. This was a claim. This was a claim that was made in 1973. Guys, Nick Aldis was born in 1986, so this is not a claim that's that's been doctored up, no pun intended, to cement the legacy of Nick Aldis. This predates Nick Aldis's life by 13 years. They were already saying at that point that look, this belt, this NWA title, is the title. That's rooted in Frank Gotch. And I would argue that goes way back to the Red Mental Championships that we talked about in our first episode or second episode. R- really interesting. Anyway, Ed the Strangler Lewis is the first member of the Gold Dust Trio. He is the superstar worker. You know, I said he started at 14. I mean, the guy's legit. Like he's he's one of the ones, if you've listened to the show, we don't, you know, we we try to be respectful in the way we toss these terms around, but he was one of the guys they would call a hooker. He could rough you up. He could throw down with anybody. So before he got that world title, which happened real soon here at at 22 or 23, depending on who you ask, he met a man, though, that would help him get to that level, who would take him to the next level. That's where Rob was going, I think. He got a a, a gentleman named Wilhelm Bowman, who adopted a name as an homage. Everybody's adopting names as homages to people. Uh, Bowman adopts the name as an homage to a legendary Prussian bodybuilder and showman of the 19th century, the legendary Eugene Sandow. And this is, of course, Billy Sandow. Having himself been a middleweight wrestler in the early 1910s, Sandow, by accident, discovered his own talents, which were a flair for showmanships and the dramatic, as a manager after losing his business in a wager to a fellow wrestler. The loss proved to be Sandow's ultimate gain, though as he became quite successful as a manager of a troop of wrestlers who toured the country, ultimately meeting Lewis and forming his own partnership with the Strangler. So the thing with Sandow is, is like, I mean, what Rob's telling you here is like, this is a guy who's a former professional wrestler and he is not the best professional wrestler. Like he's all right. What, what he is good at is gambling. Like he likes playing with money. And he realizes early on when he finally puts on a bet for his, I think it was his health club and he put it in a bet with somebody else and lost it. So he started getting into the business of helping other pro wrestlers like, Hey man, I can help you make more money here. If you just give me a cut, he became the Don King of professional wrestling, maybe, or in a modern context, I would call Billy Sandow like a, Paul Haven like character. Like he was, he was the guy who was the advocate for the wrestlers. Uh, You're talking about a sport at the time. I think that was, you know, professional wrestling at this time is largely fixed. And so as a wrestler, you prefer it be fixed in your favor or that at least you get paid like it is. And so these guys, they sometimes needed an advocate. So Billy Sandow kind of became that guy for a lot of people. He becomes the manager, essentially. He's the manager of the stars. He had it like his own troop. And then when he encounters Lewis, it was just a match made in heaven. They, they had a kinesthetic connection immediately. Very soon, Sandow brings on Lewis. And everybody else that was in Sandow's troop suddenly becomes irrelevant because now you had the marriage of the first power couple in wrestling history. 
uh, Ed the Strangler Lewis and Billy Sandow. Sandow would like get in there and help make sure you got a fair cut. Who won the match? Chances are, if you weren't cool with getting along with that, well, Lewis could take care of that part. Lewis was a hooker. He he could handle the situation if it needed. And Sandow, he took care of his boy too. He never lost sight the whole time of the world's heavyweight championship. So even when he starts booking Lewis, he sees this title held by Joe Stecker who'd beaten Earl Caddick, like Rob said, and he started getting these matches arranged for Lewis to get in with Stecker. And the first match, I think, uh, I was reading, didn't even go so well. Like, Strangler fell out of the ring, and uh, no joke, like, he fell out of the ring and busted his head on a chair or something like that. So, like, the match got called off. But in match number two, on December the 13th, 1920, he got him, probably kicking off what would be one of the Great rivalries in professional wrestling history in and out of the ring uh, between Joe Stecker and and the Strangler Lewis. But more on that later. Basically, you got Billy Sandow. You got to add the Strangler Lewis. There's one more piece of the puzzle that's missing here. Well, well, you know what granddaddy always said, Gary and Will? The only thing better than one hooker is two hookers. Right. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And that's where... Joseph Toots Mont comes into play. This is one of the favorites of Gary and Will, man. They love Toots Mont. Joseph Mont was known for his youthful good looks, especially in his younger days, and was given the name Toots by his teacher, the legendary Farmer Burns, who he studied in her directly, not through correspondence, not virtually, <laughs> not through distance learning. He wasn't on no Toots damn Mont. Zoom chat. <laughs> no, nah, he wasn't on Zoom or <laughs> doggone was a snack shack or whatever, Instagram or whatever, face page or none of that stuff, man. He was with him directly. He's studying under this man. And Mont emerged as one of the toughest, most dangerous hookers in the business. And Burns would actually come to rely on him extensively as his primary enforcer during Burns' days of traveling the carnival circuit. You know, you go in, do the carnival, you bring your guy in, if there's someone that's not, you know, it's look like he's going to be tough. That's when Mont comes in. He, you, you draw him backstage. You have Mont come in and do something or whatever. Take the guy out. Farmer Burns wins the match or Burns' Burns's guy wins a match and everything is good. No harm, no foul. So that's where Mont comes in. He becomes legendary as being one of the greatest hookers of the day. Now, as Lewis and Sandow became more and more immersed in their own travels, Farmer Burns himself suggested that Mont be hired as their enforcer. This speaks, by the way, to the notoriety that Lewis and Sandow were gaining that, that Farmer Burns would say, hey, maybe you guys could use an enforcer. But he pushes Toots Mont, and eventually they hire him as their enforcer, completing the trio with Lewis as the star talent, Sandow as the manager, and Mont as the enforcer and booker. Uh, beyond being extremely rugged and dangerous, Mont proved to be one of the most insightful innovators in wrestling history implementing many changes that would hasten the evolution of the sport from a tedious, boring affair. And you know what we're talking about. I'm not trying to be insulting, but we're talking about slow, hours-long matches of very little movement, often spent on the, on the mat or on the ground, transitioning the sport from that into the entertainment spectacle that we now know or that would come to be known as the slam-bang uh, wrestling style. And that's where the real legacy of Toots Mont 
comes into play as the great innovator of wrestling. So there's some people that are going to argue this point, but this is it, people. Like, I mean, if you're listening this far, and thank you so much for doing so, this is where wrestling becomes the wrestling that you know right now. I mean, for real. Like, we've talked about a lot of great legends and that sort of thing, but Toots Mott's the guy who carries it over to what you're used to. We talked about this a bit of before but wrestling popularity had been waning it's never picked up the same way from that gotch hackenschmidt stuff but here comes mutt and he's got a slew of ideas of what he wants to do he wants to take greco roman and catch wrestling which is all that's been happening before these guys look wrestling has been a slow tedious affair like these matches were lasting four hours these matches were lasting two hours these matches were long grappling sessions and stuff like that which i you know maybe some people were into but the rise a lot of other things that were going on boxing in particular and that sort of thing you can imagine that that these longer matches for most of the paying audience just wasn't doing it so one of the things that toots mott brought in was that he wanted to take different influences like Greco-Roman and catch wrestling. He started to pull in other stuff all the way back from carnival days to the rough and tumble style that we mentioned all the way back at the beginning. I think in like episode one and even boxing, like I said, which was becoming more popular. So he started bringing in all these rules. And, and Rob, I'm going to let you run through some of those things that changes because I think you know those. But I guess I also want to emphasize, too, a really cool thing that I love about this is that Farmer Birds still, even in episode five of this series, Farmer Birds is the guy that introduces Tootsmont to Billy Sandow and Ed Strangler Lewis. Like he's the guy who sees the changing of the guard. And he's still masterminding this thing, which I just think is really cool. He's the granddaddy of pro wrestling. And I, I just, I, I feel like his name doesn't get used enough. So I just want to say it again and again. Farmer Birds, Farmer Birds, this guy, he, his brain created the thing you love right now. Right. And, and it's pretty cool too, because if, if, if anybody is old school, if anybody was a shooter, it was Farmer Burns. And here we have Farmer Burns, the high priest of all of wrestling, like presiding over this transition of the sport into entertainment and saying, you know what? I see uh, what's going on in society and culture. I see what, what we need to make the sport survive. And I approve. Therefore, I bequeath to you Toots Mont. And, and, and some of the, some of the changes that we see with Tootsmont are time limits. No longer are we going to have these 72-hour matches, man. 72 hours. Now, guess what? Six minutes and five seconds if you're wrestling for the TV title. Now, you might still have multiple falls, but it would still go to maybe an hour time limit, you know, to, to, to recognize the general public's attention span. Striking blows, punches, and Gary's talking about implementing uh, boxing and pancreation and rough and tumble back into the sport. So striking blows would now be permitted and encouraged and maybe not necessarily permitted. It'd still be outlawed, but the ref might not always catch it. You know what I mean? Ongoing narratives. This is the kind of stuff that Will loves. Ongoing narratives of wrestlers, uh, wrestlers competing in a prolonged series over a grudge or some certain issue that, that rankling them, you know, a uh, touring with a troop and presenting a package show. These guys might go to eight different uh, towns with the same troop. And present the same eight shows. You know, once they run the circuit, they go and present a different show and run it for eight towns again. Something like that. Uh, the introduction of newer captivating maneuvers like body slams, 
suplexes, uh, Scandinavian two-toed gradunzels, arm bars, flying saucers, whirly birds, ding-dongs and wing-dings. All those kinds of things were introduced in the, in the, in the Mons era. Now, you guys ease up on me here, but the introduction of heels and faces, or what we might know in common parlance as bad guys and good guys, so that the audience knows how to, uh, or knows who to cheer for and who not to cheer for, who to cheer on and who to boo. The important part here for Mott, too, like one of the things that the comic book story of professional wrestling says, and I want to quote them here, Toots Mott, it's no exaggeration to say that he is a creative visionary. He originated much of what wrestling is today. This is my favorite line. He completed wrestling's transformation from a sport that acted like a show to a show that acted like a sport. That is what Toots Mott started to bring in. He started to understand that we got to turn this thing around. And it's interesting, too, to me that Farmer Burns was on board with this, like you said, the uh, legit shooter. But anyway, Sandow would make sure like how the uh, match would end. And if you didn't like how the match would end, Ed the Strangler Lewis would make sure how the match ended. And if you didn't like that, then Toots Mott's waiting on the outside, and he can help make sure the match ends that way. But the important part for Mott was that he realized it wasn't just who was actually the winner of the match. It was how you did it that made all the difference in the world, right? Well, actually, I'm going to let you ask him yourself. I actually have, Will, Gary, I actually have a special guest on the phone, none other than Toots Mont himself. What's up, Toots? Toots. Thanks so much for it. For having me on, uh, you know, I, I, you're saying all these nice things about me, and I don't want to uh, hunk my own horn, but toot toot. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. With, with, with a name like Toots, you have to have a flair for the dramatic. You have to. So when developing, when moving from a shoot style to a style in which the dramatic finish is paramount, What's going through the mind of Toots, M- M- Toots Mont? Well, I mean, I mean, just say, you know, one of the things that I keep in mind all the time is that two wrongs don't make a right. So, like, take your parents, for example. The, oh. the thing I want to deal, you know, <laughs> I, I'm just, I'm just joshing you, Rob. Don't, don't <laughs> judge me. I'm just playing with you. No, I just, I just think that the important thing is to keep the people coming back for more. So you can have dramatic finishes. That's the thing I focused on. I told everybody, I told Ed and everybody else, I said, the way this match ends makes it dramatic for the next time around. That's what you got to focus on. And it works. People want to be drawn into a story. That's what people care about. Toots, what is your favorite meal? I don't know what you're looking for out of here. Is it Greco ramen noodles? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no it's uh I, I generally like a good roast and comeback that's what i like <laughs> that's that's what i i dish on if you know what i mean now is it hard with <laughs> <laughs> well, that's kind of personal I feel like you're you're leaning a certain way, but I just want you to know that I'm straighter than the pole your daughter dances on. Oh, God. <laughs> so you, you've been listening to the show. So, uh, oh, I listen. I hear it. You're in a trio, a threesome, if you were, uh, or as oh, it God. were, with, with, with three of the great personalities of the 1920s. I'm talking about Ed Lewis, Billy Sandow, and yourself, the great Toots Mont. 
What's it like to travel the road with these larger than life personalities? I mean, do you guys get jealous of each other? Is there resentment? Are you getting along okay? Uh, you know, how's all that going? Oh, I mean, I'm fine. I mean, they're all right. You know, Ed the Strangler Lewis is whatever. He's he's very talented. He's a good wrestler. I'm a better wrestler. I'm a prettier wrestler. I can tell you that much. I mean, they called me Toots because of my baby face, in case you didn't know that. And even if you didn't like my face, I could get plastic surgery for my ugliness, but he'd be stupid <laughs> for forever. <laughs> no, that was anyway, smart. what I'm that saying just... is, it's, you know, Billy's, Billy's good. He's a promoter. He's a liar. He's so fake. Uh, he's so fake. Even China denied that they made him. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> oh god I, can't, Man, I, can't, I, can't, I don't know how many one-liners i got <laughs> oh, oh, so we just lost our connection to toots monitor <laughs> <laughs> I, I, we are using chinese uh fiber optics here so maybe the 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 ccp uh, was listening in and they 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 cut the connection but anyway the the new style you just heard it from from toots mon you know the new style uh, heralded in by Tootsmont and the Gold Dust Trio was a smashing success. When Ed the Stringer Lewis became one of the top heels of the day, and in developing their own traveling circuit, the trio consolidated the professional wrestling industry into the first promotion of national standing with uh, booking control over the lineal World's Heavyweight Championship. We already established the lineal-ness of the title that Lewis held. But this trio dominated it. Of course, from time to time, they would drop it to other stars like Joe Stecker and Stanislaus Zabisco. But for the most part, for, for a good you know five to six years, the Gold Dust Trio consolidated everything and became the force in pro wrestling. The funny thing is, is like, I mean, even though we're saying all this, this is modern wrestling as you know it these days. But I will give them credit in this. One of the ways that they kept things interesting is, let's see, how do I word this respectfully? They were making wrestling less legitimate, but they also wanted it to be believable. And so there was like a balancing act they were playing. So they would hire people to come in and wrestle Ed the Strangler Lewis, and they wanted them to be legitimately tough guys. So I just want to give this credit from everything I can find. I mean, they were legitimately hiring tough people, but Ed the Strangler Lewis was pretty sure that he could handle them were it to get out of hand. And if he couldn't handle them were it to get out of hand, Tootsmont is waiting on the outside. Tootsmont, by the way, would tell you, I don't know if you could tell how sassy he was, but he'd be happy to tell you that he could beat Ed the Strangler Lewis any day of the week. But he was happy in this position. Like, he was the enforcer. He was making his money. He was the idea man. So anyway, they were willing to put themselves in dangerous way that there was potential somebody could get the upper hand and win the world title, but to an extent. And I, I liked also what I think Brian Solomon in the FAQ said. He said something along the lines of, there's almost like a proportional relationship to the decline of the legitimacy of the sport to the rise of the prestige of the world's championship. As people begin to doubt the sport's credibility, the credibility of the world's championship increased so that Ed the Stranger Lewis was always regarded uh, with the utmost respect and, and reverence. Uh, and all the world champions of that era were. You had a lot of men that come through the 20s and 30s that were just uniquely fitted for the time, whether it were Stecker or Earl Caddick or especially Ed the Strangler Lewis. 
it was just a, a just a fortuitous providential alignment of events that could this is one reason that I'm a Christian man that I'm a Presbyterian a Calvinist that I believe in predestination because how, how else could these things align this way this perfect you know orientation and, and event set in order for the emergence of not only Ed the Strangler Lewis but Sandow and Toots Mont to rescue wrestling and then not only to rescue wrestling and reshape it, but to lead a promotional war against another faction coming out of New York. And I'm talking about the faction of Jack Curley, Joe Stecker, and uh, Tony Stecker. Uh, Jack Curley, by the way, is the East Coast impresario. And they waged this three-year promotional war during which both Lewis and Stecker would claim versions of the championship. We have a fragmenting of the title here, and it was believable because both had claims to it. They were both legitimate contenders. In 1928, after uh, a falling out between Toots Mont and Billy Sandow's brother, Mont ends up leaving the group for Philadelphia. He joins uh, forces with a Philadelphia-based promoter named Ray Fabiani. And ultimately, after Jack Curley dies in 1937, Toots Mont makes his way to the Big Apple and, and kind of fills in that vacancy left by Curley. Uh, Sandow would continue to be the manager of the stars. He would guide Everett Marshall to the world's championship. And Lewis would continue to dominate through the thirties, holding the championship on multiple occasions. But it's like these people were uniquely fitted. So Rob, I think if there was one takeaway from the gold dust trio that I really want to make sure it gets across is like this, the gold dust trio, the reason they're important, the reason that you want to know the name of the gold dust trio their names might be significant. Uh, significant. Billy Sandow, Toothmont, and the String Lewis is they ushered in like an era of pro wrestling that is largely, I would say, remained pretty similar to that time. I mean, they li- literally, like you can go back to, we, we'll probably have to do like a whole series on the Gold Dust Trio to really get into all of the details of like what they accomplished and who they were and that sort of thing. But you're talking about the time limit draws. Those were a big thing. Uh, well, well, time limits were a big thing. And not only because time limits could, you know, give some extra like, oomph to well, what you see with the TV title in the NWA right now, it's like, uh, you could get to like somebody, you got to win fast, but also time limit draw is another finish type that you could use that sort of thing. Uh, they also were very good at like creating new stars, I thought that was interesting about them just reading more and more about them. They brought in a bunch of tough guys and they tried to keep it legitimate because they wanted it to feel as legitimate as possible. So you had some tough guys and you'd think with Ed the Strangler Lewis walking around, like eventually some people would be like, "Uh, you know what? That guy's not tougher than me. Maybe I'll try him. But Tootsbot, especially Billy Sandow, they had cash. And people like money more than that. And that's also an important part that they introduced to pro wrestling as whatever you want to say about that. It's like at this point, it starts stops being so much about who's the baddest man on the planet. It's about who's the champion. This guy's the champion. What they would do really that I was reading about is they would do great is like when Lewis wasn't available, they would start building up these other guys and like have them look pretty good till they got to the point that they were facing Lewis, which this also sounds common. And then they would lose to Lewis. But then later on, like you have like the undercard guys, like the guys that 
weren't quite Lewis, but were close. They wrestle each other. Who's who's the best out of those, you know? And you start to build an actual, like a wrestling card. And that's a cool thing. They also were like apparently at the forefront of uh, introducing marketable ethnic backgrounds. Like, who are the guys? Like, is the Italian guy? Like, we got an Italian guy. He could come in here and do this. We got a Mexican guy. We, you know, like we they got were. A Greek, we got a Greek guy over here. You know, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they were. They were a hundred percent on board with like, uh, let's appeal to certain communities based on. Let's make sure we got a wrestler from this group, from this crew. Now we there, got a Greco Roman. <laughs> yeah, we got a Greco Roman. The other thing, though, that Rob, you didn't hit on yet, that I thought you would hit on, that I'm interested in. Because of in 19, was it 1914 uh, with the Black Sox and the World Series issues? So to I, I thought you would appreciate, and as I'm sitting here talking to you, the listeners can't see this, but you're wearing your Braves cap. And I know that you and Will are big baseball fans. Another great tie-in to professional wrestling was the reign of hell that was brought down on ba- professional baseball because of sports gambling and what it did to the industry. And so there are arguments that I think it was Steve Yo that uh, was the guy that was mentioned that says that it wasn't just toots. This was the whole wrestling industry that started to shift because they started to see that look what just happened to baseball with the black Sox, the world series. We cannot, continue presenting this as a legitimate sport and allow gambling something's got to give somewhere or else we go get effed over by the fbi or something yeah and if you look if you look down at the next point on my notes i was actually heading to that point oh perfect i planned that (laughs) right yeah no you're absolutely right it's not as though you know wrestling historians are unanimous in their belief oh this new era, the change in professional wrestling was strictly the, the work of the, of the gold dust trio and that it was deliberate and didn't just happen organically. There are historians like Steve Young. I think Solomon actually mentions this will in the FAQ where he says, look, most of what we know about that period was in that book that we referenced earlier, fall guys by what's the guy's name. Uh, the author was uh, Marcus Griffin or uh, 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 yeah. Marcus Griffin. There are people that think that Marcus Griffin was a pseudonym, a pseudonym from no other than Tootsmont himself. And so the authoritative source that we use to describe the evolution of the sport in the 1920s may have been not an objective bystander at all, a very uh, <laughs> a inside personality with an axe to grind and with uh, self-promotion at heart, and that would be Tootsmont. We don't know that for sure, but there are people like Steve Moe who argued that, look, man, it wasn't just a trio. You had all these other things, this national trauma going on, this general distrust in sports because of the Black Sox scandal. Of course, the national fatigue of World War One. The, the World War One guys, listen, I, I'm a student of theology and, and, and philosophy, and the effect that that war had on the human psyche, not only from a geopolitical and uh, and uh, philosophical standpoint, from from a spiritual standpoint, was it's not like anything we've experienced. Maybe the pandemic might be the bo- the best comparison because I've seen it rivet and shake people to the core like I like nothing in our lifetime. 
But that was World War One in those days. And so this change in attitude uh, towards sports and towards professional wrestling in general might have been part of that. I just think that's all beside the point. I don't think that anybody is, again, it's like we were saying earlier about people saying pro wrestling is not the same sport as Greco-Roman wrestling in the first Olympiad back in 300 BC. No one's saying that. No one's saying that it was only the Goldust Trio that did this. What we're saying is that they are a symbol of a transition in the sport, and they happen to do it very well. And what they were doing in, in, in terms of engineering the sport was at least a microcosm of what was happening on a national scale. So if they weren't the cause of it, they were certainly representatives of it, if that makes sense. They, they were certainly symptomatic of a general transition, and they just so happened to be the best representative of it, unless you want to look at the trio that was dominating the New York wrestling scene, Joe Stecker, uh, Tony Stecker, and Jack Curley. <coughs> but nobody's really arguing that. So, you know, I just don't think that we ought to press too much on that. It's not a point that anybody should, that shouldn't be the hill that you die on. The Goldust Trio were there. They were influential. They controlled the world title. They were important. And they represented, if they did not instigate and initiate, they certainly represented a change in the sport. It's not like the Attitude Era changed wrestling. Was the Attitude Era the cause of wrestling or were they a symptom of something broader in the culture? That's where we got to get to. You know, you know, anyway, that's neither here nor there. I'll tell you something that is, you know, you're talking about people bringing in real legitimate stuff, guys. Something we do see happening here during this era, the mid to late 1920s, is we see a preference beginning to be given to just big, good-looking guys rather than legitimate, talented shooters. And uh, the examples that, uh, that Solomon gives in his book are Wayne Munn, former football star, Dynamite Gus Sonnenberg, a Dartmouth football standout, who defeated Lewis for the championship in 1929, and then the Irish import Dano O'Mahony, who was unknown in the 1920s, but by the 1930s had become one of the greatest superstar draws of the day. And so we have this preference being given to people who can, like, like you were saying, the sport no longer trying to be a show, but now the show imitating a sport. It's no longer uh, athletes who could attempt to entertain. It was now entertainers who attempted to convince you that they were athletes. Not that they weren't athletes, but wrestling is a different beast and, and they weren't in their nature wrestlers. They just were big, good looking guys who they could market. They had marketability. As a, a matter of fact, Paul Bowser, who was the promoter of the Boston area territory, controlled Gus Sonnenberg. And after 1929, when Sonnenberg beat Lewis, he now controlled the world's heavyweight championship. This is the lineal title, guys. And Bowser created the American Wrestling Association. That always strikes me as weird that we see these repeated uh, acronyms appear from time to time. This is not the AWA of Jumbo Ceruta or Rick Martel or Stan Hansen or Nick Bockwinkle. This is... Uh, you know, a Vern Gagne. This is the American Wrestling Association of Paul Bowser, a completely distinct territory, but it emerged. And it's again to, to re hit on the point that we made earlier about the Goldust Trio and this new style of wrestling, this, this Western style. It's not as though Bowser was the first to do this, 
But the creation of the first AWA was representative of a larger trend in which promoters would create rival territorial organizations, and this would result in fragmentation of the world's championship. The New York uh, State Athletic Commission established its own world championship. Obviously, you're going to have Curly and Madison Square Garden ha uh, having some influence over this. And then you have a National Boxing Association, the NBA, forming a subdivision called the National Wrestling Association. Not the Alliance, something distinct from the Alliance that would be founded in 1948. This National Wrestling Association would have its own world championship. But something that I find very curious is that in 1937, a gentleman won the National Wrestling Association uh, championship, his first world championship, and this gentleman would later become synonymous and inseparable from the National Wrestling Alliance, and that was the great and legendary Luthez. 1937, he wins the association title. Uh, by the early 1930s, the Boston-based promotion of uh, Paul Bowser who boasted not only the talents of Gus Sonnenberg, but eventually Ed the Strangler Lewis would come and join this association after the dissolution of the, the Gold Dust Trio. And they would be rivaled by the New York territory of Curly, whose major star and world champion was the handsome Greek superstar Jim Londus, considered by many, according to Brian Solomon, to be the first sex symbol in the history of the sport of pro wrestling. So. By 1932, the two big promotions are the Boston promotion of Bowser and the New York promotion. In 1932, Lewis invades New York, and the New York State Athletic Commission not only sanctions Londis' championship, but it also sanctions Lewis's championship. And so you have two world championships now, both sanctioned by the New York Athletic State Commission. Both now have a legitimate claim based on a duly constituted athletic commission to the legitimate world's heavyweight championship. And in 1933, all of the major parties involved in this uh, dispute between these two rival factions, and I'm talking about Curly, Fabiani out in Philadelphia, Toots Mott, uh, Bowser, Ed the Strangler Lewis, and Jim Londis entered into an unspoken agreement, a wink and a nod now, called the Trust to arrange for a unification bout between Lewis and Lawness. This is important, guys, for the sustaining of the lineal championship. And at Chicago's Wrigley Field on September the 20th, 1934, in the biggest super match since the 1911 Gotch Hackenschmidt match, also held in Chicago, 34,265 people witnessed Lawness defeat Ed the Strangler Lewis to become the undisputed lineal world's heavyweight champion, the predecessor to Nick Aldis. Uh, the gate earned something like $96,300, and this record-setting crowd would not be surpassed for two decades. By the time we get to September 20th, 1934, I think we clarify a lot of muddied waters, and we can settle on the fact that by that point, we have a Lenoa champion that the fragmentation that we'd been talking about with the emergence of all these promotions and territories was consolidated and solidified. And we can now focus on Londis as the new lineal world's champion. And this is the same title going back to 1905, uh, the, the title that Gotch 
had claimed after his victory over Hackenschmidt. Man, I hope the listeners are with us so far. I mean, this is how complicated the past of professional wrestling is. Yeah, yeah. we're trimming it down um, too. You've got you've got you've got a, a ten or eleven other rival claimants too, but these two are the best that have that have the best claim. If we're interested in talking about lineal-ness, these two have the best claim at it. So we're, we're, you know, we're skipping over a lot of stuff that hopefully in future deep dives we can come back to. So, (laughs) well, let's wind it. Let's wind this episode down. We we've been we've been going on for a good hour or so now. As the as the 30s reach uh, mid decade, we have another catastrophe in the history of pro wrestling, and that is the Jack Pfeffer New York Daily Mirror expose. Now it's not like we not had exposés before. If you think back to the Opera Cup, we had people uh, exposing the mass marvel, following him around, uh, you know, revealing his identity as Mort Henderson and, and whatnot, and talking about the secrets. We had people like using hypnotism tricks. It wasn't as though people weren't doubting the legitimacy of the sport by now. But when we get to Jack Pfeffer, this Eastern European immigrant and rival promoter who was probably a little bit resentful of the trust and the gold dust trio and whatnot. This is the first time that we have an expose from someone on the inside. And he went to the, to the press, spilled the beans, broke all kayfabe. Just, it's like a magician going out and sharing all the deepest, darkest secrets. He would talk about how championships were decided in the back rooms and through the deal brokering and, and whatnot. And this really, really damaged the sport. I mean, it's, is an insider. He was tight with these guys. He was tight with Curly, and through through a number of events, he's on the outside looking in. And out of resentment, he goes to the press and says, "You know what? Screw it all. I'm going to burn the house down." And he goes to the press and says, "Look, this is how it's done. It's all fake. You bunch of marks buy into it, and sure, you're just as bad as they are." And it was a sensation because this was the first time that an insider had dared to expose the business like he had done. There had been exposés before, but never from somebody so close to the inside. Pfeffer was at the highest levels, man. The, the best analogy I can think of is like when when President Trump was in office and his fixer, uh, what was his lawyer's name, his fixer, his attorney? Anyway, you remember the guy, he ended up going, not being the Trump fixer anymore, ended up having this big falling out and then going to the press and spilling all the beans. It's that kind of thing. Like, that high level of an expose, uh, where there's smoke, there's fire. And so people Michael are like, Cohen. Hey, yeah, Michael Cohen. Exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so the, the Pfeffer is basically the Michael Cohen of the day, honestly. And I think Solomon mentions this. I can't remember if it's Solomon or, or Yale or somebody, but I think it was Solomon. He mentions that in a sense, the wrestling business still has not recovered because before the Pfeffer expose, there was still general mainstream acceptance of wrestling as a sport. But after that, people looked at it as this fake, crass form of dubious entertainment that was there designed to fool the less intelligent population. It's the forget the, the performance art of it all. It was people trying to trick you, and whoever fell in for it were idiots. And there is still a portion of the population, for good or ill, that still believes that wrestling is nothing but trash entertainment. 
And that's wrong. It shouldn't be that way, but that's what the effect of the Pfeffer expose has had on the sport, and we've still not recovered from it to this day. And that that's the state of the sport when we get to the end of the 1930s. I mean, we, we, we've got another bust that's going to require another buildup. And uh, ironically, or I guess not ironically, but maybe appropriately, the people that are going to save the sport this time are the people that represented the roots of the business at its origin. Not the cities, Philadelphia, Boston, and New York, but the Midwest, the Plains, where Farmer Burns was from, Iowa, Kansas, Nebraska. It's going to be a troop of Midwestern promoters, the area of wrestling's carnival origins out of Missouri, Kansas, Nebraska, and Iowa, that will witness the founding of a cartel now that reinvigorates the sport and controls its operations on a global scale. And guys, what we're talking about now at this point is the National Wrestling Alliance. And when we get back on our next episode, we're going to discuss the founding of perhaps the greatest wrestling entity, not perhaps, definitely, nay, as Gary would say, the greatest wrestling entity of all time. But it might be appropriate at this point as we wind this episode down to look at our power rankings for this era, the era of the 1920s and the 1930s. Rounding out top five would be the Boston prodigy brought in by Paul Bowser, who would upset Ed the Strangler Lewis in 1929 and reach the heights, the pinnacle, winning the lineal championship, and that would be the Dartmouth sensation, Gus Sonnenberg. Then, of course, at number four, the man who would exchange the championship with Lewis on multiple occasions, Joe Stecker, and then, of course, at number three, probably Ed the Strangler Lewis's greatest rival of the era, something or a person that Gary mentioned earlier, that would be Stanislaus Sabisco. Number two, the man that ended the decade owning the lineal championship and maybe probably should be number one, but because he did not define the era, we're going to put Jim Londis at number two. And then finally, at number one, a man who without the – Without him, there would be no wrestling in the 20s and the 30s, at least not in the sense that we know it, and that would be the great at the Strangler Lewis. That is our power rankings of this era, the 1920s and 30s, the era of the Gold Dust Trio. Will, <laughs> how, how do you feel right now about all of this? Uh, it's, it's all starting to come together. When you're talking about history and, and you're talking about the evolution of something as as intricate and as big as pro wrestling, you know, you got to boil it down the way that you guys have. And, you know, y'all, y'all have done a great job of explaining it, bringing us up to speed. This is definitely the era where I start to perk up. I mean, this, you know, for me, some guys get into wrestling and it's because of the sport aspect. I got into wrestling purely for the storytelling. I was never a big, you know, sports fan. So for me, that's what, makes wrestling what it is today. What's what makes it so appealing to me. So I, I love, you know, hearing the transition and, and, you know, seeing what took it from, you know, these huge long matches to, okay, we got to create something that people can sink their teeth into. I mean, and, and I think this is indicative, as you mentioned, you know, talking about the attitude era and stuff earlier. I mean, this, this is the times, I mean, you look at the twenties 
and entertainment is on the rise as as a whole and people's you know attention spans are getting more and more limited um and so you gotta stay with the times and i think it was kind of a do or die time for wrestling to where you know it it evolved the way that it did luckily but it could have just faded into oblivion um if it had had not done that so you know, I'm, I'm, I love hearing these stories and, uh, hearing some more context. Cause these are all names that if, if you're a wrestling fan, you've heard these names before, you know, in and out of conversations. And it's good to have the background for it and to be able to, you know, wrap your mind around who, who these guys are and, and what they contributed to the sport that we, you know, watched earlier tonight. Rob was doing, Yeoman's work, like trying to like bounce his way through the history, like trying to get us moving to the next point. And I'm still stuck on like, well, wait a minute. You <laughs> didn't talk about this one thing. And Rob had, had moved through it already. And, and so like, I have to remind myself like, nope, this is the framework. We're like working our way through it. Yes, there's a lot to talk about. But at the same time, it was like, all right, we've mentioned Stanislaus Abisko like four times. Here's the point where something he does is important. And Rob's like, <laughs> well, we're going to bring him up. And I'm like, no, man, I want to talk about the prequels. There was a Stanislaus Abisko Joe Stecker <laughs> hot dog eating contest that led up to the <laughs> That without that, would there would not have been a Lewis Londis match. You can't forget the Stanislaus hot dog eating contest. So anyway. <laughs> Come on, man. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, (laughs) love them. You smell like hot dog water, Rob. I hope I I smell like Nathan's hot dogs. Those jokers are good. They're delicious. Or Hebrews Nationals, man. Yeah, baby. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, we got to wrap this episode up. Thanks, everybody, for listening so far. We we tease this every episode, I feel like, but now now we're really in it. The National Wrestling Alliance. We're starting to talk to you about the NWA. This This is where what you watch now, if you're a fan of this show, you probably came here. A lot of you came here through NWA Power. Five episodes and 40 hours later. (laughs) (laughs) We're finally here. Anyone anyone who's ever watched us before, it's pretty on brand for us. You know, we don't, we don't, uh, we've never been accused of getting right to the point of any argument. So professional wrestling is such a huge endeavor and i don't feel like people give it the credit it deserves like it has its own unique history of now it's a it's a journey man and and part of the fun is the journey and that that's like will saying that's that's the that's the route we take we choose to take the long road home you know what i mean because it's that road that 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 we find the richness that and i tell people all the time man listen it, it, in in my line of work and you guys we're all professional people one of my life's missions is to proclaim the fact that wrestling is legitimate performance art it is art it's legitimate sustaining enriching entertainment it makes my life better i mean it kept me out of trouble. I'm indebted to wrestling. I love it now. I'll always love it. And I want my kids to love it. I think it's good stuff. And and part of it is the richness of the history, the past that we take, the twists, the turns, the swerves. We're not allowed to use that word, but you know, that's all part of it, man. It's all part of the human drama. It's a microcosm of the things that we deal with on a macro level every single day in the drudgery of life, but also on a on a on a excuse me, on a micro level every day. 
but also on a macro level when we deal with existential things and big things. And I think wrestling speaks to the whole spectrum, the whole cacophony of colors that make up the richness of life. And, and wrestling is, uh, is a synopsis of that. Well, we got to wrap this up. Rob's turning into a human thesaurus. That's our cue that we've gone too long. He really did <laughs> just start saying like a bunch of words. And, and, and the thing <laughs> is that's so tough. I don't know if you can hear it in my voice, but as we go along, I drink the whole time. And so <laughs> the longer these episodes go, <laughs> the more lost I become in the in the stories. And so then I'm like following through my notes and I'm like, what? It's <laughs> like in the first five minutes, man, Gary's sentences were quick and to the point. It's like, hey man, you gotta do this. And then we get to the last few minutes. He's like, and look, man. The reason <laughs> these go so long. You know why? <laughs> hey. Oh, it's true. It's so sad, but it's true. Oh, well, then you got Rob who starts out and, and he's, you know, you're very matter of fact too. And you're just like, oh, this is the history, da, 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 this date, this, this. And then by the end, you're like the cacophony of the symphonious, harmonious, <laughs> professional wrestlonious. <laughs> it's just like you guys just evolved so much over the span of an hour. Yeah, no, that's man. what happens, yeah. dude. It's a metamorphosis, man. Gotta- it's a metamorphosis. <laughs> Will, it just feels like you got to hang out with us for the entire weekend in Atlanta where it oh, ends God. up me being like, hey, Rob, dude, you know I got to go to bed. You win. You like, win. I'm, feeling, I'm sleepy. Literally. And Rob's like, no, man, what do you want to talk about? Do you want to talk about how Robert Herman said this thing in 1776? Like, let me take you back to Robert E. Lee and like what he told everybody like in the Civil War, the great philosophers of the 18th century. This is what they said. That's what Rob does. Well, I mean, I'm like, hey, man, you know, it's the weekend. <laughs> well, folks, you probably right. for this long. You're you're one of you're one of the inner circle. Hey, yeah, thank you so much. Thanks for being with us. No, we'd love to. <laughs> we'd love to go out and have drinks with you, obviously, so you could be a part of this bullshit. Thank you so much for hanging out. This is pro wrestling history. Next week, next week we get into the NWA. The National Wrestling Alliance. If you're still listening, God help you. Will enjoy Will is so done cake. with us. I can't. <laughs> he's like he's like enjoy your gravy yep. cake. Will's yeah, like, would you just say enjoy your gravy cake? I, I'm listen. I'm going on vacation tomorrow, and the only thing keeping me from it right now is going to sleep. And the only thing keeping me from going to sleep is you, jokers. So enjoy your gravy cake.